The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Thank you, everyone. Um, Welcome. Um, We are beginning what I think is going to be a fantastic two-session today on choosing where to live as you age and downsizing. And I am here to introduce the participants for today. First off is someone who, when she says jump, I say how high, Miss Linda Perel from San Francisco, and she is here virtually, and she will be taking over in just a few minutes. And I'm also going to introduce the other presenters. Virtually, we have Dr. Carrie A.B. Horty. She is Assistant Professor of General Internal Medicine, Omaha, Nebraska, at the um, University of Omaha Medical Center. Uh, Secondly, we have Marianne Eusebio, Information and Assistance Division Director, Eastern Nebraska Office on Aging, also from Omaha. And finally, and and she is here to my left, and finally on my right, we have Wendy Chenard from Los Angeles, California, and she is Director of Curriculum and Training for the Helen Keller Center on Deafness for Youth and Adults. I am now going to turn it over to Linda Perel and to begin questioning our panelists. So, Linda, take it away. Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to um, what should be a very informative and lively uh, discussion over two sessions this afternoon. First, I want to thank my friend Jeff Tom for agreeing to put the resources of um, the Alliance on Aging and Business Loss um, to work for us uh, to organize this activity. Um, I am the co-chair of ACB Women, and um, I would like to um, thank our presenters as well. You know, it was wonderful to approach each of these ladies and get an immediate yes to the inquiry of whether they'd like to join us today. So thank you in advance. I know we'll learn a great deal. So um, I sent a few questions to you um, to think about, and uh, I'd like to proceed by going around, have each person answer each question, some discussion will flow out of that. And then after a while, after we've had a good discussion, we'll take uh, questions from the audience in the room and on Zoom. Um, I'm wondering if we have any idea how many people we have with us at the outset. We have 42 people in Zoom and uh, 48. And on the panelist side, we have six people. Thank you. All right. Carrie, thank you so much for doing this. And I'm so glad we were able to switch you from live to um, on Zoom. That worked out really well. So the first question I want to ask is, how did you become interested in working with an aging population? Well, hi, Linda. Again, my name's Carrie Horty, and I work at Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha. I um, went to medical school at UNMC, then did a med-peds residency and a geriatric fellowship, and uh, all at Nebraska Medicine. So I'm kind of still where I where I did my training. When I was in medical school, um, I was looking for a job on the weekends, and I responded to an ad in the newspaper um, for a woman who needed help with her husband, needed a home health aid. And so I um, called the number and showed up at the house, and, and it turns out I was helping a lady care for a gentleman who had progressive supranuclear palsy, which is a syndrome very similar to Parkinson's. He needed assistance with activities of daily living, such as um, 
helping with feeding and prompting chewing as well as toileting and dressing and bathing and everything. And I just felt like it was a very intimate way of caring for individuals. And I was really drawn to patients with complex medical conditions and, and always felt that I learned a lot from my patients who were older. So I, uh, I followed that path and uh, have been blessed to work with a lot of uh, patients who are considered geriatrics. Geriatrics is considered 65 and older. Um, That's kind of what drew me in initially is my first home health experience. Thank you. Um, It is pretty remarkable. Geriatrics is not a, um, a popular specialty for people coming out of medical school. So people who go into that initially and stay with that are are to be commended. Thank you for that. Okay, Marianne, how did you get interested in working with an aging population? My husband and I moved to Omaha in 2010 uh, as empty nesters, and I started looking for a job, and I applied for a job at the Eastern Nebraska Office on Aging in Information and Assistance. I've always liked being around older adults. I never wasn't really familiar with area agencies on aging, and I, I like to talk on the phone. I like to help people, and that's how it started. Uh, I was in Information and Assistance. Uh, people call in and are looking for solutions to whatever issues they might be having, and we try and help them. Uh, I really, um, I, I've always been around older adults in, in my lifetime, and I enjoy hearing their stories and learning from them. So it really was uh, a perfect fit for me. Great. Thank you. Um, I noticed that uh, you had a 603 number and of course that's yes. New Hampshire so you yes. certainly moved moved a long way to settle in Omaha yes so. yes I still kept that 603 <laughs> okay um Wendy what um interested you in working with an aging population I understand that you work with a broader adult and child population but what are some of your interests in the aging group I work for the Helen Keller National Center, and we have various satellite offices throughout the U.S. Um, We do have an older adult specialist who right now is in transition, so um, I am here to sort of represent that um, area. But what I do is uh, developing curriculum and trainings for older adults um, and for just in general individuals who have a vision and hearing loss. So they have to have the combination of both. What got me into the older adults um, arena is seeing the need for more training um, and training for service providers um, who work with this population, um, who are older adults with both vision and hearing loss. Um, More than that as well, Helen Keller National Center has been there for over 50 years. And Through our older adults programs, we've been able to not only provide consultation, um, also specialized services, not just in one state, but in almost every state, um, and also the surrounding territories like Guam and some of the islands. Uh, So we do, I'm very passionate about it, um, and it's something that we look forward to even growing more in regards to the training, because I find that if you train um, agencies that work with older adults, especially with the combination of both, um, you you get further than just um, than just trying to do uh, HKNC, trying to do advocacy for them. But I think the training component is what's lacking in a lot of the agencies, which is why we see such a gap in services. So that's one of the reasons I'm passionate about it. And our biggest population of individuals with the vision and hearing loss are the 55 and over population. So there's definitely a lot of room for growth and improvement, and I'm really excited to be here on this panel today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Wendy. And and uh, you are singing from the same hymnal as ACB on that score. We are um, all, of course, very interested in making sure that all the providers for our population are properly trained 
And uh, you know, that's an ongoing uh, challenge for the organization. My next question, which I'll shift a little bit, I wrote, what is your current position and focus of your work? But maybe instead, it would be interesting to focus on a day in the life. What, what does a day of work look like for each of you? Carrie? Thanks, Linda. Well, for the most part, I'm in clinic at University of Nebraska Medical Center um, on the fifth floor uh, of the Durham Outpatient Center. So I'll see, uh, you know, six, seven, eight, nine patients in a half day. And I usually have one or two third or fourth year medical students with me. And so Mm -hmm. when I'm working with medical students, they'll see the patient and then they'll report back to me and we'll go in together and answer questions and review everything the medical student spoke with the patient about. And then one half day a week, I'm working with the residents who are training to be internal medicine doctors. They are inter- they are physicians. They finished med school, but they're mm-hmm. training in internal medicine. And so that's at the Midtown Clinic on 40th and Dodge. And they have their own patients. And, and uh, I listen to their stories and then go in and see the patients when needed, certainly for the first years and the first six months. And then it's so amazing for me to watch them grow in their confidence and in their knowledge. Let's see, you know, of course, after hours, that's when the work begins with paperwork and getting back to patients with their labs and and what the plan is, you know, that we just started discussing in the clinic. So that's kind of what what my work life looks like. Okay, I'm going to expand that a little bit um, to to get at a little bit more about what uh, geriatric doctors do, you do not provide primary care. Is that right? I mean, you you see, you get referrals from somebody, you see um, folks and make recommendations, but um, uh, are the patients in your clinic, did any of them receive primary care there or not? Yeah, so I trained at UNMC Geriatrics, and I did have primary care patients there, but there's also programs called GAC, which is Geriatric Assessment Clinic, and then Methodist, and I think Thing have, Think, Think Whole Care, Whole Person Care, has GEM, which is Geriatric Assessment evaluation and management. So you can either have your prime, if you're 65 and older, you can have your primary care doctor be a geriatrician or an internal medicine doctor or a family medicine doctor, or your family medicine doctor or internal medicine doctor might choose to have you evaluated by one of these multidisciplinary clinics. These GEM or GAC clinics have a social worker, a geriatrician, usually a geriatric uh, neuropsychologist who can do a lot of the memory Mm -hmm. testing. I don't know if I said social worker, nurse care coordinator, pharmacist to help review the medications. So that's where I trained. But currently I'm working in general internal medicine. So I my patients are my primary patients. Um, and some of the conditions that I see frequently in my geriatric patients are different kinds of dementia, you know, Alzheimer's or vascular dementia or um, Lewy body dementia. We see a lot of... Um, difficulty with gait and balance and falls, sleep disturbance, anxiety, depression, heart disease, Mm -hmm. diabetes, pulmonary problems like COPD and asthma. So yeah, you can either see a geriatrician as your primary doctor, or you can get a consultation and just be seen once a a year for follow-up for other recommendations for your main doctor. Okay, thank you. Marianne, what is an average day like at Eastern Nebraska Office on Aging. There is no average day. (laughs) Uh, That's why I love my job. Uh, Every day is something different. It's never, um, every phone call has the potential of being something, a situation that we might have never had before. Uh, So um, this morning we had two walk-in visitors One was looking for uh, information about uh, care for his mom who uh, had a fall over the weekend and is in rehab. Um, Not sure if she can go back home or what that might look like. Uh, So we try and provide resources and information so they can make those informed decisions. A lot of times it's family members uh, maybe looking for uh, services for their parents or their loved ones. 
Sometimes people are calling in themselves. Um, area agencies on aging are located all across the country uh, and they provide intermittent support. They don't provide um, daily cares in the home. Um, and we're, we're probably most well known for Meals on Wheels. Um, that's that hot meal at the noon hour for folks who might be homebound. Um, so our uh, all referrals uh, for uh, any in-home services uh, within our agency start with the information and assistance division. And so we're on the phone a lot, um, triaging calls and trying to get information, uh, the needed information to, to, to people. And we're also directing them to community resources, uh, maybe giving them the phone numbers of uh, other area agencies on aging that they might have family members and they're looking for information uh, to connect them with. So uh, every day is different. And uh, sometimes we know the answer. Sometimes we don't. Uh, there's uh, about 80 people uh, that work in the office here in Omaha. So I'm pretty confident uh, if we don't know the answer, we take their name and phone number and um, we kind of consult together with my staff and information and assistance, or we talk to people um, you know, in the building. And then uh, we also have a lot of really great resources out in the community that we can connect with uh, to give people the information that they're looking for. That's great. And Wendy, what is your day like at Helen Keller? Um, well, I have a great team that I work with. So um, every day that we start work, we're constantly looking for ways to empower, how to empower this population. And one of the things that we're working on right now, we got a really generous grant from the Consumer Technology Association. And so with these monies, we are creating content of how to create accessible technology for the home, for the work, for older adults um, specifically, how to, uh, in, how to teach older adults how to empower themselves by using technology. Um, so that's what we do on a daily basis and creating the content, um, not only for it to be informational, but 100% accessible to our deafblind individuals who are 55 plus. Um, so that's the biggest project that we have going on right now. And it's going to overview different assistive technology. Um, it's going to cover the whole gambit. So the day starts off with a lot of brainstorming and a lot of storyboards. How do we present this material in a way that will be interesting at the same time, accessible, and empowering? Okay. Linda, can I ask a follow-up question? Uh, Absolutely. It to this. Yeah. Um, thank you. Uh, just of Dr. Horty. Doctor, does Medicare cover consultations either by another provider or more importantly, by an individual with uh, a physician with expertise in geriatrics? I believe so. Yeah, I'm not as much on the billing side, but yes, it does cover. I mean, I think it depends on your plan, but um, some plans requires a referral from your primary doctor um, and some you can just call, you know, your orthopedic doctor for a knee problem or a cardiologist for heart problems or, or um, if a family finds that there's a need, they're having concerns about mom functioning at home, that kind of thing. If the family wants to call the geriatric clinic and make the geriatric assessment, the family can do it. And then the geriatric clinic is, is very good about figuring out, okay, do we need a referral from your primary doctor or not? Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay. Linda? Yeah, that's an incredibly important question. Next question is, um, we're going to switch more to what this whole process is all about that we're doing today. Um, what do you look for in your patients or clients that could indicate that a change in their living situation would be advisable? And it's going to be a follow-up question is how do you present that assessment to them if you've made a, a, an assessment that would recommend those changes? How do you present and what kinds of uh, responses do you get? So what do you look for to, as kind of danger signals or just red flags that 
something's going on here and this person might need a new place to live. So um, Carrie? Yeah, that's a really good question and it's pretty complex. A lot of, I would say most of the time, these concerns are not brought up by the patient alone, but by family members. Right. Um, And oftentimes it's a safety issue. Maybe um, a daughter or a son or a neighbor notices that mom or dad or the neighbors, um, you know, uh, having troubles with safety, falling more and more or not quite taking medications as prescribed. And so taking medicine some days, but not all the time can be problematic and can cause fluctuations in blood pressure or cognition or sleep. And uh, so safety. Also, one of the main things we try to make sure we pay attention to is a person's desire. In geriatrics, we usually like to focus on four things. So it's what matters most to the patient is the first M. So we always want the patient to let us know what's important to them in life. Uh, we want to focus on medications, making sure that we're prescribing appropriately, not over-prescribing, watching out for side effects, mobility. So that means watching how do people walk? Are they falling? And do they need assistive devices? And then mentation, which is kind of cognition. Do they have signs of Um, early dementia, or could they have depression or sleep apnea that's causing some slowing cognitively, or do we have them on medicines that's slowing them cognitively? So I would say, um, in answer to your question, what makes us start thinking about, can someone stay in their home? It's, are they safe in their home? Are they thriving and doing okay in their home? Um, And what matters to the patient? Where does the patient want to be? If a patient wants to be home, which most people do want to be home, do we have the support structures in place? Can can a son or daughter or neighbor or a home health aide come into the house and do medication management? And can they be prompted to take their medications? Or, or if you have a medi set, is that enough? Or do you need to be prompted to actually take the medicine? And maybe we could hire a company uh, that has home health aides to come in, you know, in the morning or evening or a couple hours a day for company and prompting with bathing and 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 meal preparation. Could we do something like the area age, uh, office on aging and have food brought in uh, like meals on wheels? And uh, um, so then oftentimes I find it's helpful to kind of plant the seed early and say, and share stories, uh, success stories about patients who've moved from their own house, you know, and, and maybe they, they did, they, they were successful staying in their own house because they had, they were able to, you know, fortunate enough to have the finances to pay someone to come in and help with meds and meals and cleaning and that kind of thing. Um, but then I'll also share success stories about individuals who moved either into a, 55 plus independent retirement community for active um, elder individuals or a skilled facility where they are able to provide medications and meals or, or even a long-term care facility and how the benefits of being very social and being with other individuals that are of a shared generation, uh, sharing meals, walking the halls to get to the meals, and how that's very good for you physically and cognitively to share in the socialization. So I think a lot of individuals have a negative stereotype in their head about what a old-fashioned nursing home looks like and smells like. But a lot of times I'll say, well, just, you know, look online and go tour a couple of places and see what you think. And it's helpful if if it's not an emergent situation and people have time um, and you realize some of these places are actually pretty nice and clean and the food is decent. And and so we have time. So that's kind of the, the beginning. But I'll, I'll let other uh, I'll let uh, Wendy and Marianne toss their thoughts into here, too. Yeah, um, no, that's that's great. I, and I do want to sort of like keep in mind that I'd like to focus a little bit on family responses um, as well over time. Um, I read this fabulous fabulous book called Being Mortal by Dr. Atul Gawande. And what he said stuck in my mind forever, which is older folks are looking to keep their autonomy and independence and family members and caregivers are most concerned about their safety. 
and that there needs to be a balance between those two those two motivations. Marianne. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, sorry. go ahead, Carrie. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, sometimes we'll have an occupational therapist come into the home and do a home safety evaluation. So get rid of throw rugs or yeah. put in handrails in the showers, things like that, that can help minimize the risk of falls. And, uh, and that can be really helpful. But I would, I would agree that people are happiest when they are given and allowed to be uh, as independent as possible and maintain their maximum amount of freedom. And that's what we want for them, too. I try to convince patients that we're all on the same team and we want what you want, but we also want you to be safe. So I, I don't want people to feel like their care team and their kids are trying to lock them up or take away their keys or get them in a situation where they won't be able to move freely in the world, but more that we're on your team and we want you safe because we care about you and we want the best for you. So, so Marianne, after they've gone to visit uh, Dr. Carey's clinic, maybe they come to you. Um, and yeah. um, um, <laughs> what, what's, what, if, how do you uh, address them and um, sure, advise sure, them yes. moving forward? Absolutely. Well, just one thing I'd like to say, and it kind of goes along with uh, what Carrie said, is that that aging really isn't a disability. And so it's really important to be proactive instead of reactive. So we just we have conversations about um, maybe what what that uh, what those next steps might be. And and um, as Carrie said, is it is it do you think you can live safely in your home um, with, with some intermittent supports? And we talk about um, maybe what those supports might look like. Um, and then um, at, at our agency, uh, we, we do not have a housing department, but we have um, uh, information and resources that we can provide so that families uh, and, and consumers themselves can, uh, older adults themselves can kind of look at, look at what, what the options are out there. And you need to consider uh, what your finances are and, um, you know, what, what, your, what your next home might look like for you. What's important? Um, you know, do you want to be around people and have activities to go to? Um, do you need to be close to a doctor's office or your family, um, you know, what's really important to you and, and just start um, looking around. And it might be that this is a gradual thing. And as Carrie said, you know, you kind of have to plant the seed. Uh, when our care managers um, see their clients, um, they kind of don't start out you know, talking about what are you going to do when you can't live here? It's kind of a gradual discussion as, um, you know, maybe the safety issues come up uh, or they notice a general decline. Um, you know, what, what, what does that next home look like for you and how can we make that happen? Thank you. It's um, clear that the message is coming across that the sooner we uh, begin these discussions as we're aging, um, the better opportunities we will have to maintain our independence and what have you, rather than waiting for that fateful fall down the flight of stairs that changes everything. I um, was a social worker when before I retired and uh, those issues would come up. Mm-hmm. So, um, Wendy, um, is there anything that you want to add to this discussion concerning like the materials that you folks develop um, to help people uh, in that population? Yes. Um, I was actually thinking that we, we work based off of referrals. So um, when we get a referral, oftentimes it's because either a doctor or a social worker or another agency has noted the need for some sort of um, a support or intervention because their home is not safe anymore. Um, and oftentimes with the population we work with, it's due to their new either vision loss or hearing loss. And so what we do offer is a five-day comprehensive uh, program. It's called the Confident Living Program. And in that program, we go through different areas. For example, they get to meet with a uh, 
assistive technology instructor. Also, they learn strategies on how to be safe at home, um, how to prepare for emergencies as well, how to travel safely, um, how to enjoy leisure activities within their area, or how to find community um, in their new home if they do have to relocate. Um, other things as well, they get to meet with a, a, an attorney or a lawyer to talk about their independence and their new, you know, their new, um, their new status. And as well as um, they're able to interact with other adults who are 55 and over who are going through the same transition as they are. So it's a five day program. It's really interactive. But um, after the five day program, not only do they get a comprehensive assessment of their needs, but we are able to refer them to the location nearest their home that can support them um, thereafter um, with their living situation. So again, it's a program that is hosted in New York, but if they cannot make it to New York, we do have other programs nationwide that they can participate in. And usually the groups are about six people. So it's a very, you know, intimate setting. Um, and at HKNC, we also have to, we serve various individuals from different cultural backgrounds. So we do have to keep the cultural component in there as well when we provide services because independent living or living um, situations are often affected as well by culture, cultural norms. So we have to keep that as well in the forefront that we want to empower the individual, but be very, very respectful of their culture as well. Thank you. Um, Wendy, you bring up a really important point that I hadn't thought about mentioning, but um, I'd like Carrie and, and Marianne to talk about the legal issues, the whole issue of creating healthcare directives and proxies and power of attorney and so forth for patients or clients as they age and um, how you um, advise people to deal with those issues. Marianne, do you want to start or would you like sure, me to? Sure, absolutely. Okay. okay. Uh, well, we, um, the area agency uh, in Nebraska, we partner with Legal Aid of Nebraska and they operate the Elder Access Line and they um, can help people set up simple wills, uh, power of attorneys, healthcare power of attorneys. And it's when we go out and do presentations and in our different publications, we encourage people to, again, be proactive and get those important documents set up um, before um, you maybe have a diagnosis of dementia or Alzheimer's disease, um, because at that point, it's, it's kind of a whole different ballgame. Um, so again, it's just about education and um, kind of um, pointing out the importance of having those documents uh, on hand, like know where they are and have them completed. Uh, and I know some of the um, med center, uh, they have different projects going on um, right now, working towards making people understand the importance of advanced directives and making sure you have all, those, all that documentation complete. Yeah. Medicare um, pays for an annual wellness visit for all Medicare recipients. So annually, individuals who are on Medicare should be seeing their doctor. This annual wellness visit does include a discussion about power of attorney and advanced directives. It also is an assessment, uh, a mini cognitive screen, mm -hmm. depression screen, fall risk, lots of questions, urinary incontinence. And so it's, it's a good assessment of a person's function, uh, current level of function. When I have a conversation with individuals and, and, and uh, a lot of my colleagues similarly, I will first start out saying, now, if you had a stroke or a car accident or, or something happened to you where you could no longer make medical decisions, who would you want to make those medical decisions? And then usually they'll give me a name or a few names of a spouse or a kid or a friend. And I'll say, does this person know that they are your power of, power of attorney for medical decisions? And if not, I'll encourage them to have this conversation. And then I'll ask about, we have a form that 
it's it's not an actual legal document, but it's more to prompt discussion. And I'll say, I want you to have a conversation with your power of attorney about two things. The first is what makes life meaningful to you. So that is what makes life worth living. And most people, some people want to be, you know, alive no matter what, give me everything, the vent, the feeding tube, the trach, the everything. And some people say, I want no extraordinary means at all. I don't want CPR. I don't want the ventilator. Most people would like to live with some level of cognitive function and not in a persistent vegetative state, but everybody's different. So I say, let people know what makes life worth living to you. And the other thing is, what would be totally intolerable to you? What kind of state of living would you ask that your power of attorney, you know, make you comfortable and and reach for comfort cares, comfort measures rather than curative measures? Some people say um, not being able to live in my own home or not being able to wake up or um, not being able to take care of my own bowels and bladder. You know, everybody has that thing that maybe they would say, please just make me comfortable. Don't don't prolong this. So I encourage them to have those conversations with their power of attorney while their cognition is still such that they can have these meaningful conversations. So the, the conversations I'm having are not so much legal as much as they are encouraging their loved ones to know their wishes. Um, mm-hmm. But we do want to get those papers on file for when when that becomes necessary. Let's say there's a situation where you have an elderly um, patient client who really needs some intervention and they're just very adamant that they don't want anything of the kind. Where they have children that are eager to, uh, maybe even a little overly eager to, to move the ball down the field and get things set up for them. Um, tell, tell me about the, the services that um, each of your groups provide for that, mainly social workers or what have you, um, how they can help intervene with those challenges. Anyone? I can get started. <laughs> I mean, I feel like um, I'm tossing the ball back to Mary Ann, but, um, you know, it, Like we said earlier, if a person can live at home and we can set up the safety, uh, the necessary safety, you know, um, interventions like medications and meals and, and, you know, if there's problems with wandering or leaving the burners on the oven or anything like that, if there's things that we can do to minimize risk and keep someone in there current level of living, that would be awesome. But oftentimes we um, we have most of the PCMH, patient-centered medical home clinics, do have a social worker that works with them. And oftentimes our social workers work closely with our area offices on aging. On occasion, we will have to um, get in touch with the area office on aging. And, um, and Marianne, you can speak more clearly than I can on this, but doing home safety evaluations or, or um, making sure that people are safe in their homes. Can you talk a little bit about whether or not that's done by your, uh, how, how you get that done? Well, uh, uh, we, we actually, if, if they're on care management services, the family member can talk with us, the client's care manager, and they can kind of come up with, with. A, a plan. Um, we don't, and they're checking for like basic home safety things, you know, get rid of the rugs, um, you know, um, make sure you, you know, take this, move this table. They do kind of general things, but again, we might recommend that they um, get a home safety evaluation from an OT or a PT through, uh, again, through their primary care physician, and then see if, if that works. But, but Linda, are you, are you talking about when it's really time for somebody to maybe think about moving elsewhere and, and how, how does, how that process works? Yeah. And, Um, and the, 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 and the resistance that that might be, uh, you know, Uh, well, unfortunately for, for us as an area agency on aging, we can't make, uh, an older adult accept services. 
Uh, and so we, we try and um, sometimes we'll call the client directly or the, the parent and kind of talk about what, what services we could provide. Um, we might send out our brochures to the different family members and they might kind of, we might encourage them to have like a, a group meeting with, with all the family members present to kind of reason with mom or dad about why it would be beneficial for them to accept some services so that they can stay in their own home. But, but unfortunately for, for us, you know, we can't make that older adult accept meals on wheels or accept um, in-home services through our agency. Uh, we do have some volunteer programs where we might be able to get a volunteer to do a, um, a telephone reassurance call if the family, if that would help, or we mm -hmm. have a senior companion program. Uh, and then sometimes um, we might have to encourage the family uh, if, if it's self-neglect or a, a dire situation, they might need to call adult protective services. Um, right. You know, competent adults have the right to make stupid decisions. They might not be living the way the, the family members think they should be, um, but we can't make them accept the help. If I can add something to that. Absolutely. Um, what we do is, um, of course, first, um, during that confident um, program, they do have an advocacy course. Now, there are families, and I brought up the cultural component because a lot of our consumers, or clients, come from various cultural backgrounds. And you have a lot of resistance in the families. Um, especially the Latinx families um, and other families are very, very uh, close together. So what we have found that has been successful is that we do have a family engagement uh, program. So we engage the family because oftentimes it's not that the families don't want to su be supportive. It's just that the trust is not there. Um, either because of, you know, their, their own experiences. So we found that having family engagement sessions, incorporating the family along with our mental health specialists that we have on site has been very successful. Just have a very open discussion about the needs of the older adult. Um, it could be a parent, a grandparent, but having that discussion and also um, showing the family members that with training, the individual can live successfully independently despite their vision and hearing loss. So it's oftentimes it's just more of a, um, it becomes more of a round table discussion, but we found that to be very successful. And I don't have this exact number, um, but I would say that in almost 100% of the cases, the families have been very supportive after having these discussions. I'm, I'm glad that Marianne brought up the adult protective services as well, because um, it is nice to know that we have advocates who can go out and assess situations. And like Marianne said, individuals can choose to live in situations where it's, you know, no running water or very dirty, but if they're competent and they choose to stay there, you can't make a person who has decision-making capabilities. You can't, you can't force um, decisions on individuals. We can uh, refer individuals for neuropsych testing, and that's more detailed um, cognitive testing, and that can help us decide whether or not an individual has decision-making capabilities. And then also primary doctors and geriatricians, family doctors, internal medicines can do Montreal cognitive assessments and, um, and see, you know, how individuals score and we can extrapolate these scores into how they make decisions in their lives. So, Every once in a while, we do have to write a letter stating that an individual does not have decision-making capabilities, and the letter will enact both healthcare power of attorney and, um, you know, financial power of attorney uh, and decision-making uh, capabilities will be um, removed. But of course, we always want the patient 
to feel like they're autonomous and to be involved in the decision-making process uh, in order to maintain trust and to have positive outcomes that everybody feels like they're part of. So, Linda, I don't know whether you're ready for questions yet, but before that, just I just wanted to make one observation. There are caregiver resource networks throughout the country, and they do an excellent job, by and large, of providing information and resources to, um, to family caregivers. However, it's been my experience that these networks know little or nothing about not only the services that um, people who are blind or have low vision, older adults especially, can receive, but how those services can impact their lives. So essentially, those uh, family caregiver networks are providing very little uh, assistance that is impactful for our community. And I don't know how to bridge that gap, but I think we need to do more to bring them into the lives of folks in our community. So Linda, back to you. No, no, thank you for making that point. I mean, I think our, our, our population is particularly vulnerable to um, being um, inadequately assessed as to how well we possibly could do with the right interventions. And uh, that's something that we all live with on a daily basis. Um, and so um, we appreciate anything that any of you can, can do to think about those issues when confronting someone who is um, blind or, visually, or has low vision or is, is losing their vision. It can be particularly disorienting for the latter group. Any normal sighted person will commiserate with someone who's losing their vision and feel that it that it's a has some tragic aspect. But it doesn't have to be that way. And there's we have ACB and and our local uh, chapters and affiliates have a lot to offer to help people deal with that transition. So yeah, let's let's go to questions. Um, people in the audience. Um, okay. First of all, I want to thank you for having this program. I think it's a really important program to have. My wife and I are both blind, and this is more about my parents. My parents are ninety. My mother's ninety. My dad's ninety-two. My mother, within the past year, I would say, has fallen maybe three times. Um, she visited the hospital twice. Um, my dad has, has Alzheimer's, and um, he suffers from dementia. The interesting thing about what's going on with them is I think they recognize that there are problems, but I think they um, kind of, um, you know, they think about it and then it goes away and then they think about it and then it goes away. I've started looking into um, in independent living uh, situations where they could, you know, be in everything. I think my question to you is, how do I present this in a way that is comfortable for all parties? I'm happy to start, but I don't want to hijack the conversation. So Marianne or Wendy? <laughs> I mean, if you want to start, Carrie. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I think it, you know, I think your name was Rick, but having a open and uh, kind of loving relationship with your parents that precedes the falls and that kind of thing is very helpful, of course. And then letting your parents know that you love them and care for them, of course, and want the best for them is important. And then 
empathizing with your mom that it's really tough when she's falling, but she's also trying to be a caregiver and very helpful to your father who's suffering with his memory and approaching it from an angle of wanting to be quite helpful and wanting to see if there's anything that could not that your father is a burden, but kind of take the edge off the caregiving uh, that your mom may be doing as a result of your dad's memory problems. Um, and Rick, I wonder if is your dad um, aware of his memory problems or uh, I'm not, you know, because some people are aware that they forget names and used to be able to do finances, but now they can't. And some people, depending on their stage, are not. But it, I wonder if your dad's aware uh, how much he's involved in the conversation as well. I didn't realize you were going to ask him. Oh, I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I but removed his permission to speak. Oh, no, that's okay. I, I think if you, you know, want him to answer, if he raises his hand, I'll. Okay. Um, but I think, you know, approaching it from love and concern as opposed to. I'm worried and I want you out of your situation because there are certain things in a person's home that are safety features. You know exactly where the bathroom is. You know exactly where the, uh, I mean, especially. Did you want him to unmute again? That's uh, okay. okay. I mean, especially for individuals who have visual impairment, which he's not saying his parents do, but especially for people who have, who are blind living in a place that you're very familiar with is very helpful. And I'm preaching to the choir. You all know better than I do. But uh, so, so being able to stay in a home is quite helpful, but um, I think approaching it from a, uh, I love you. I want the best for you. I want to make sure that you have the resources that you need. And maybe I want you mom to be able to be dad's wife rather than caregiver and want the best for both of you can help, can be a, a helpful approach. I think we'll just let the panel respond so that we can take more questions too. So Marianne, did you have something to add? Um, well, I just think, you know, our, um, has he talked to his mom about maybe getting, you know, getting some help in the home? Um, you know, that would probably be a first step on, on, from my point, um, and then, um, you know, are, are, are there, is there anybody close who could, who could assist um, until they, you know, make a plan, I guess. And this is Wendy. And um, also to, to note that the conversation is not going to be a comfortable one. Um, your home has so much emotion, memories. Um, there, it's a very difficult conversation. So, um, be comfortable in or with an uncomfortable topic. And the only way to do that is to come prepared. So I would recommend do research, have your materials ready, because when you come prepared with other options for your parents, if you have those resources and you yourself are informed, you can inform your parents of them and do it with more confidence. And confidence is very contagious. So if you if you exert that confidence, um, it'll transpire over to your parents. Again, it's not going to be a comfortable conversation at all, but it's a good start um, preparation for you, Rick. Is there a comment on this? Sure, you can. It's so so mm -hmm. important to use I messages. I love you. I am very concerned. I even said to my husband, I'm having trouble sleeping at night because I am concerned because you're up and about and I don't know if you're going to fall. I'm saying this to you because it's if you say you upset me when you fall, you worry me. Those are defense mechanisms and they're going to put seniors on defense. So that's all I had wanted to say. I just want to say just use those loving eye messages. Great comment. Thank you. So do we have any hands in the room? Can I just say yes, one we thing? Have three, uh, we have three hands one, in the room. Yeah. Could I say one thing uh, for Rick as well? Um, I think one thing you need to keep in mind is that your parents may be worried 
about them being separated into different facilities if, if the intervention happens. That happens really often, and it's something that you want to watch out for and see if you can help them make sure that they can um, stay together no matter what happens. And we have a question here in the audience. Go Hello, ahead. This is Jean Marie. And speak um, up into your mic, please. I'm trying. I, I'm wearing that's masks. better. Um, I it's a completely different subject. I'm wondering if um, there have been tests developed, um, neuro, um, neuropsychological tests developed um, for older, totally blind people. Thank you for that good question. And I am looking up the answer. I should know this, but I don't. I I, I believe there are, I don't know what they're called, um, but that's a great question because part of the Montreal Cognitive Assessment takes into account like connecting A to B or, you know, mm -hmm. 1A, 2B, 3C, copy this cube, uh, draw the face of a clock. So sir, what is this? This is a camel, a lion, a something. So those things are, that's, that's not fair to not give a blind person points for not being able to do this. So let me look that up and we can probably move on. If, if Interestingly I enough, I actually got into it with the University of California Davis Medical Center Oh, good. On this very issue. And after I wrote them a rather terse, nasty letter, <laughs> when they were like, we're not going to even look at you, um, excuse the pun, um, they said, okay, we'll try to do something. And then they said, I didn't fit their criteria. Uh, if they have developed those tests, um, it has been in the last year or two, because basically oh. the answer to that was that I received was no. Okay, so I'm seeing this um, C O G E V I S. Oh, cog cognitive evaluation in the visual in visual impairment, and what's the date on this? It's a new um, a new scale developed to accommodate impaired vision, and it's uh, and it is uh, a cognitive evaluation screen, um, and it does. Mm -hmm test learning and delayed recall temporal spatial orientation short computational test language um, comprehension executive function uh, letter fluency similarities um, and tactile recognition so naming versus uh, via tactile recognition so I don't know when this came out but it sounds like Oh, this says 2018. Mm -hmm. And That's where is great it, to know. Gary? Where, where is it? Uh, where are they uh, doing it? Um, this is in a journal called Behavioral Neurology, and it's okay. uh, behavioral and cognitive changes in neurodegenerative disease and brain injury. So it's a volume, excuse me, it's from 2018 article, okay. and it's the, the test is called COGEVIS, a new scale to evaluate cognitive cognition in patients with visual deficiency. That is great information because that yeah. is a serious problem. Um, especially for people with no vision. I think the, the tests have been used more extensively for people with limited vision, but people with no vision haven't had that alternative before. So I'm glad we've got great, great question. And thank you very much for the research. And Do we have another Zoom question? We have a number of Zoom hands. Rita, okay, you well, may speak. Hi, Sarita Kimball. Thank you so much. Excellent, excellent panel. I just wanted to add um, something. Uh, I've worked for many years doing uh, early stage uh, Alzheimer's support groups as a facilitator. And it sort of in reference to what Rick shared, uh, oftentimes this panel has been directed at our needs as we age in place. But oftentimes we're aging in place with our parents too, which is what Rick spoke of. And in that instance, depending on your relationship with your parent, we're always going to be their child. We're their adult child, but their child. So when we try to have those important conversations about money and where they're going to live and so forth, that can be very challenging because they may not want to have you in the role of suggesting what they may need to consider. 
And in that instance, it may be helpful if you have, you can get an ally to help you facilitate and start that conversation. And the other comment I want to make, everyone is in a different place in terms of their economics on this call. And one of the things I learned about running groups for people with the early stage Alzheimer's is that that economic piece is so critically important. If you are someone who has assets, you have a home, you may want to speak with an attorney. And I would encourage that attorney to be an elder care attorney, someone who understands elder care tax laws, understands trusts, et cetera. If you are someone who does not have that means, that economic means, you may, in addition to services being provided through area offices on aging, and they're called different things in different states, uh, you may be able to receive some services from your Center for Independent Living resources in your community, also known as SILs. And I would really encourage you to become more active in your SIL because they oftentimes have great resources. And they, the, the model of a SIL is to help one maintain their independence and live in their community for as long as they can with the proper supports, mm -hmm. uh, getting assistance and forth. And then thirdly, for in, in, throughout the United States, there are programs available where if you need assistance in the home, you can call upon, a, if there's a family member who's been rendering that assistance, they may be able to get some funding for providing that service. They may have to take a couple hours of training. And the same is true if, if your loved one is a veteran. If they're a veteran uh, and you're providing uh, care, caregiving services for your, your spouse, your father, uh, if that that is a compensable that receiving some monetary uh, funding from the VA as a result of their service time, you too may be able to receive funds to compensate for services in that instance. But thank you so much. Excellent program. This is thank Wendy. you so much, Sarita. Um, Wendy, I'll, I'll let you answer in a second. Um, um, all those wonderful things you listed, we could do another whole workshop just listing services that could be available. And I really appreciate your adding those. So, Wendy? Yeah, I wanted to add to Rita that um, I really appreciate you bringing up the subject of elder care attorneys and also a third party um, and, and also for other agencies to kind of um, have a program like HKNC does where they do have an intensive five-day program and they do get to meet with an elder care attorney. They get to meet with a mental health specialist who can act as a third-party person to help help them make that transition or um, to get the help that they need because you need to take into consideration all not only the legal aspect but the emotional aspect too so I really appreciate Rita bringing out those really important points as well yeah thank you we have about 10 minutes left um, shall we take another question or yeah we have a we have a person in the room Linda and we'll go, go with that Ann Brash, and I just have a question. Are there uh, geriatric um, agencies or organizations that can uh, refer people to specific places to live, like housing specific or specific retirement homes? Great question. Thank you, Ann. I can speak for um, Nebraska, I guess. Uh, there are uh, businesses uh, called, uh, there are housing navigators, long-term care planning people. Uh, it's, it's their business to help people connect with their, their next home. Uh, and I think they're all across the country. These are private businesses that, that do this. And most often, it's no, there is no charge to the consumer. So um, I would suggest that maybe you contact your local area agency on aging to see if they have any um, names of housing navigators. And again, um, in Nebraska, uh, our, our area agencies don't have housing departments, but depending on where you're from, you could contact the uh, area agency on aging and see if, uh, if they have a housing navigator on staff 
or if they could direct you to one. Um, again, area agencies uh, are all across the country and they're a really great resource for, for local, for all things local. And they might not know the answer, but they could connect you to somebody who could. So I hope that answers your question. Yes, you're good. This is, this is Connie Bateman from Sacramento, California. And I was my husband's primary caregiver. So he wanted to stay home and I was able to fulfill his wish because we were able to use home health workers, caregivers, home hospice workers. But the thought that has crossed my mind is as a totally blind person who, who now lives alone because he passed away, and who has who doesn't have family nearby? What's going to happen when I start to have health issues, or if I become terminally ill and there's no one around to take care of me? I mean, I know we probably can't answer that in one session, but I just want whoever wants to respond to that because I know I'm not alone in this situation. Um, okay. I think it's important to let whoever your power of attorney know, you know, your wishes, but there are continuous care communities where you start out either in an independent retirement community. And then if you need assistance can kind of transition into assisted living. And sometimes you can stay in the same room. Sometimes you stay within the same group of facilities, but transition into the, to the assisted area. And then if you need um, long-term care can transition there, but sometimes again, you can stay in the same room and then you're able to maintain the same friendships that you form in independent living as your need increases. Uh, so that would be one option. And then having someone nearby that could be designated as a, a, a power, you know, not your power of attorney, if you, if that person is a family member and at a different state, but um, as much pre-planning would be helpful. So you're going to be hearing again from Linda in the next uh, session. And I hope all of you, whether you're on Zoom or here, will stay for that session because that's going to be just as fascinating as this one has been. Um, but on behalf of uh, ACB Women and Myself, as president of the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, I want to thank our presenters, uh, Dr. Carrie um, <laughs> Horty, uh, Marianne Eusebio, and Wendy Chouinard, and let's give them a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff, and thank you, ladies. Um, yes, please stick around for, uh, you're going to hear from three ACB members who have made different living arrangement choices, and we will have a lively discussion on their experiences.